Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. We're back today with part two of a conversation with voting rights expert, Mike Latner. If you missed part one, I suggest you check that out first. If you tuned in last week, you heard part one of our episode on how we can vote safely this November during a pandemic. Last week's episode covered a wide range of problems with our electoral system, not just problems that are unique to these times of COVID-19, but also the problems that have existed in our system for generations. This week, we're focusing on the solutions, what we can do to ensure equitable and safe access for every voter. Dr. Michael Latner is an associate professor in political science at California Polytechnic State University and a Kendall Voting Rights Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists. In part two, he tells us about the evidence-based solutions for the problems we face and what it will take to implement these solutions. Spoiler, like most things, it's money and time. And he encourages each of us to get involved however we can, from advocating for voter reform with your own state officials to handing out ballots at the polls on election day. And of course, the most important thing this election, making sure you can vote by mail. Mike, is it conceivable that the election in November could be postponed? So the presidential election could only be postponed with enormous difficulty um, at the federal level. The, the date for the election is set by federal law, that is Congress, and it's been set since 1845. So in, in order for the federal government to change the election date, a law would have to be passed by Congress, that is both houses. It would have to be signed by the president, and then it would have to survive numerous court challenges. So it's very unlikely that at the federal level you would see that change. The, the president could try to use emergency powers to do so, but even then, it, state legislatures really are the, the important actors here because they can arguably control the timing and manner of elections as set by the Constitution. So you could get some state legislative action that might try to postpone the election. But even there, of course, you're talking about you know a multi-state attempt to, to postpone or delay the election. So that would be very difficult. So it's highly unlikely, but can you imagine a scenario where the election would be postponed? I mean, I, I guess what I'm really curious about is if there's anything spelled out in the Constitution outlining what should happen if we couldn't have our election. Uh, no, not really. I mean, there, there's a presupposition that there are going to be regularly held elections. I mean, we've held elections in times of difficulty and even emergency. We've held an election during the Civil War. Um, we held an election during the last major flu pandemic in the early part of the 20th century. So the m- most likely scenario, if the president was going to try to to postpone the election, would be to use his emergency powers and to issue a memorandum or executive order to uh, postpone or delay the election results. But that would immediately be challenged in court. So it would be unprecedented for an election to be postponed and sounds like pretty much impossible. But are there things going on in individual states that give you pause? Oh, a- absolutely. We are, we're seeing a number of efforts 
on the parts of states to control their their electorates as they often do. And so one of the things that we're seeing is a kind of bifurcation of how election laws are being changed in anticipation uh, of the November election under the conditions of the COVID pandemic. And so many states are expanding their registration deadlines, they're sending all voters absentee ballots, or more frequently, they're sending all of their voters applications um, to apply for an absentee or mail ballot. Um, But then there are a number of other states, such as Texas and Wisconsin and uh, several states that are actively seeking to not lift up voter restrictions, Um, Alabama as well. So several states are still requiring voters to have witness or or notary signature requirements to apply and submit absentee ballots. And there are a number of states that are working in the opposite direction. That is, rather than making it easier to vote and trying to provide an equal opportunity for all voters to cast a safe and secure ballot, we are definitely seeing some states that are, at a minimum, uh, not lifting restrictions, and in some cases, not acting to provide the infrastructure and the support that local election officials need in order to um, secure the right to vote for all voters. So, uh, for example, the Attorney General of Texas achieved something of a victory in the Supreme Court recently when the Supreme Court allowed the Attorney General to not expand no-excuse absentee voting. So in Texas, you still have to have an excuse or be 65 or older to apply for an absentee ballot. Um, That was challenged under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, and the Supreme Court upheld that the states can control that. So those are the sorts of tactics and techniques that um, you're likely to see and that we're already seeing as we head into the election. What is the worst case scenario for the November election? Oh, it, it gets pretty bad, actually. Um, so the, the worst case scenario is, is really just one of uncertainty. That is, we, we have a lot of confusion and a lot of chaos around the election itself. Um, that is, we've got very long lines. You've got people that are either don't show up because they don't want to risk their health, or we have people that, that do show up and then they leave uh, because they're waiting in line for so long. And, and that makes the, the quality of the votes cast uncertain. Uh, we won't have a representative sample or a robust um, turnout that we can be confident that the election results reflect the will of the people. In addition to that, if we have a surge of vote-by-mail coming into states that are not prepared to process those, that's going to take a long time to process uh, those ballots. Um, And even with in-person voting, long election lines on election night means that those ballots are going to take longer to count, which means that we won't know who the winner is of various contests, including the presidency, on election night. And you compound that with the uh, fact that we might have major problems with processing those ballots if states don't have the equipment that they need to process those ballots adequately. They don't have the training or the poll workers. And what that creates is uncertainty. We don't really know how confident we can be in the results. And if we don't know how confident we can be in the results, and if 
parties and agents that are interested in using that uncertainty for their own political gain have an opportunity to point to those irregularities, then people can use that uncertainty to get the election that they're looking for. That is to claim that there's widespread voting fraud, to make all kinds of unsubstantiated claims, and to claim authority, to claim power, when we really don't know who the winner of the election is. That's the worst possible outcome. I agree with you. That's pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it it really is about as bad as it can get. I mean, this is how democracies die. When there's uncertainty over the process and when, when people and groups have an incentive to use that uncertainty for their own political ends, to either claim authority that they may not necessarily have or to refuse to cede authority, even when the election results are somewhat clear. Any kind of uncertainty um, gives leverage to those uh, who would seek to either obtain or retain power without the legitimacy of the election. Well, I'm glad we've talked about the worst case scenario here, because hopefully that will incentivize people to act now. And you did mention that um, you know getting Congress to act on the HEROES Act is really important. So I want to talk a little bit about solutions. It sounds like the work that needs to be done to make the election in November, it seems pretty straightforward. How do we get there? How do we do it? Well, the first thing that we need to do is to get Congress to act. In the, the CARES Act, which was the first COVID bill, Congress allocated about $400 million for election infrastructure for all the states. And several studies, the Brennan Center and and several other organizations have actually calculated out the the need to scale up vote by mail and to provide the needed safety and and security infrastructure for um, all 50 states. And the number there is closer to 4 billion. So What we're looking for with the next COVID bill, which is the HEROES Act, is an additional $3.6 billion that would be allocated across two states according to their needs. That would provide local election officials with the resources they need to actually scale up. And and there really is no alternative to this because states don't have, especially in this economic climate, you know, as you can imagine, states don't have the extra resources needed to build their infrastructure out. And so States are really in a very difficult position in in terms of having their budgets slashed and at the same time needing to scale up their election infrastructure. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. The second thing that needs to happen is that that money needs to have very clear guidelines and targeted allocations. So we know what works. We need to provide voters more options. So every state needs to provide voters with the option to vote by mail. States that have more options for voting um, have shorter lines, there's less congestion, less risk of infection on election day. So those options should include vote by mail, they should include early voting, and they should include a, a robust and safe way to vote in person on election day for voters that need that. So those are the, the three options that voters need. We also know that in order to reduce congestion and, and waiting time, we need to expand points of service to the greatest extent possible. And so even though states may be forced to consolidate precincts, we need to, to the extent that it's possible, ensure that there, the number of voting machines per precinct is um, maximized given um, safety standards. 
because the points of service affect the time to vote. And if we can reduce the time that it actually takes to check in and to cast a ballot and to move through the line, we can greatly reduce the length of line and waiting time. And that reduces the time of exposure to the disease with other people. So we want to expand points of service, expand options, and reduce the the transaction time for voting. If we can do those three things, we can ensure that we'll have a safe and healthy election. And with the additional infrastructure funding, we can ensure that the uh, the processing of those ballots is done in a way that's equitable. And we need those national standards in place to ensure that the the process, for example, of verifying ballots as they come in, processing those ballots in a timely manner, and ensuring that um, that when there's a question of a valid ballot, that states should err and local election officials should err on the side of the voter. That is, if there's a two-party system where you've got multiple judges evaluating ballots, if there's something wrong with a, a voter's ballot, they should have the opportunity to correct it. So we need requirements and standards that allow voters to be contacted in a timely manner if there's a problem with their ballot, and they have both the methods and the time needed to correct that problem. So Mike, what would an example of a problem with a ballot be? Well, let's say someone forgets to sign the back of their envelope, right? When I mean, you've got a lot of people that are going to be voting by mail for the first time in their lives. That means that we're going to have a higher number of problems with ballots, people that either um, forget to sign the back of their envelopes before they mail it, uh, or they don't put on the postage if the state doesn't pay for the postage, uh, or if the signature doesn't match. For any of those reasons, those votes won't count unless the voter is given an opportunity to correct those problems. And we have best practices. States like Colorado and, and Oregon have really uh, you know, well-designed practices. They, they've developed a, a vote-by-mail systems over years rather than months. And so they notify voters within a few days if there's a problem with the ballot. And they allow multiple methods from photo ID to uh, sending back in a new ballot with an adequate signature to, you know, they provide various ways for voters to verify that they are who they say they are. And that's really important. And that, that's why we need standards that put the burden on local officials to reject a ballot rather than putting the burden on the voter. Is vote by mail supported in a bipartisan way? Yes. In in fact, the small group of individuals that are uh, making these unsubstantiated claims about vote by mail are are not representative of any political party or or ideology. And so one of the, the lead signatories to our expert letter that went out that was a collection of health and election experts, included uh, Trevor Potter, who is the president of Campaign Legal Center and is a, a noted conservative and uh, was legal counsel to John McCain's presidential campaigns and was appointed by Republicans to, to head the FEC, the Federal Elections um, Commission. There are a number of organizations, uh, Protect Democracy being another that we work with, that includes many notable conservatives and Republicans including the Republican Secretary of States uh, for uh, many of the states, um, Utah, Oregon, and Washington, that run universal vote-by-mail. So they have the experience, they know that it works, and they support expanding it nationwide. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you want to geek out on voting data, see where your state is in preparedness, learn what you can do to help ensure a safe and fair election, or simply order up a mail-in ballot, we've got excellent resources. I'm going to give you two links to check out. The first is act.ucsusa.org slash voting. And the other is sciencerising.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share us with your friends, family, coworkers, and on your social networks. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So I want to go back to what we were talking about. We touched on this a little bit earlier, and that is that people who are more at risk, people who live in urban areas, often communities of color, people with disabilities, that they are, you know, at, at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19 when going to cast their vote in person. Are the measures that you talked about, will it address those issues? Yes. The goal should be to reduce um, wait times and reduce length in line, because that's the time that people are spending with one another, even with social distancing, right? That, that, that's the, the most dangerous time. The, the overall risk of infection is a function of the risk factors for any given environment, and that has to do with social distancing and being in an enclosed versus open environment and things like that, um, versus the time spent in that environment. And so the thing that we are most looking to reduce is the overall risk. And what we found and in uh, years of political science research has demonstrated that those particular voters and, and that the voting precincts in, in densely populated areas and precincts where there's a higher percentage of voters of color and the like, that's where the long lines occur. And so if we're going to reduce the average overall risk, we need to reduce the wait time and the, the time that voters um, spend together. The average time spent voting is only about 10 minutes. But in those particular precincts, the voting times are anywhere from 30% to 100% um, longer on average. And so if we can reduce wait times by addressing the number of options that voters have and the preparedness of the precincts, the resources, so having enough voting machines, being able to process voters efficiently and process votes efficiently, that will address those disparities directly. You know, if you think about averages versus extremes, the average time to vote is, is fairly short, but it's in a small number of precincts and frankly, in a small number of states where we see these really long wait times of an hour, hour and a half. And it, it's, you know, only about one in 20 voters has to wait more than a half an hour. But those are the voters that are most at risk of infection. And we know where those precincts are. We know the types of precincts and we know how to fix that problem. And so that's where our resources should be directed. Are there other things that individuals can do? Oh, there's so much that individuals can do. Thank you for asking. So number one, people need to update their registration. They need to make sure that their registration is 
uh, updated. They need to make sure that their friends' registration is updated and their neighbors and their coworkers. And everyone needs to make sure that they're eligible to vote because the normal process of voter registration, there's been a wrench thrown in that whole situation because people can't canvass voters. They can't do all of the in-person face-to-face work that is a normal part of any election cycle. In order to do that, mm-hmm. if I want to do that, I can go to TurboVote or, and I can just talk to my friends, email them, social media, put that out there. That's how I would go about doing that. That's right. Yeah. Just remind everyone to make sure that they're eligible to vote and to as many people as possible. If the option is there, you need to request an absentee ballot. So we want to move people from voting in person to voting by mail, wherever it's possible. It's a lot easier in some states than in other states, but there's been an increasing number of states, as our our 50-state report shows, Um, A number of states have taken action to make it easier to vote by mail. We need to take advantage of those changes, and we need to ensure that every voter that's able to can vote by mail in order to reduce the level of voting congestion and uh, long lines on Election Day. So that's sort of individual preparation that needs to be made. But in addition to that, Americans and and all residents, uh, whether they're eligible voters or not, can, can work to make sure that their state election laws are as open as possible. And so you should write letters to your editor. You should go to UCS and see where your state is in terms of preparedness for the election, and then take action. Try to, to use your, your powers as a, a resident and as a, a voter to get election laws changed. That's a, another major hurdle that needs to be overcome, and, and we only have a few months left to do it. Um, the final thing I would add is that Uh, You can serve. You can make a difference. One of the biggest challenges that local election officials face this year is a dearth of polling workers. So you can use websites like uh, We Can Vote, the the Power to the Polls, uh, Empower the Polls app. You can figure out where your local election officials are. You can sign up to be a poll worker. You can sign up to be a staff member. And you can help be part of the process to make sure that if you are not a high-risk COVID um, individual, You can take part in the process and you can help fill some of those gaps that local officials uh, so desperately need filled. Well, Mike, that's great. I I hope we've inspired some people to do that. I I think I might look into that myself. It's a fantastic tool. Yeah, We the Vote, uh, We Can Vote is uh, doing a lot of things. Um, They also provide um, resources to figure out what the election laws are in in your state. Um, The Voting Rights Lab also has a great state's voting rights tracker that that you can use that we're partnering with. And so there are a number of resources out there, uh, but we need to get everyone involved in this election. Um, Indeed, I would argue that we need something like, you know, a nationalization of our election. Our election is in, in real dire straits and the quality of our democracy is really being threatened. And so um, this is a time for people to step up and serve. Well, I I have a follow-up from my, turbo vote um, activity last week, I got my application to apply for an absentee ballot here in Massachusetts. Typically, you have to have a reason, but they've, um, they've changed that for this election year so anyone can get a mail-in ballot. And I'm, I'm hoping that it works really well. And that's just how we handle things, you know, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, that the, the, 
most efficient uh, method from a administration perspective um, would be to send every eligible voter uh, a ballot. And Mich- uh, Massachusetts is, is moving, uh, has moved in that direction as it has Vermont, California, um, but other states have done what's sort of the second best, which is to send and, and allow everyone to apply for an absentee ballot. Um, I think it's important to note that that is uh, not as, as good of an option in the sense that it adds another administrative hurdle. So uh, you've got another piece of paperwork that has to be completed and sent. And in any sort of barrier, any extra administrative step that needs to be taken is, is going to have an effect on turnout. That is, um, we know from a lot of political science research that uh, every additional barrier, uh, when, there, when you add a cost to, to voting, that that has an effect. And it typically has an effect on voters with lower socioeconomic status. So uh, for voters where it's hard to vote anyways, because it's hard to find the time or take the time off, or um, you know, fill out the the application. Um, you're increasing the odds of there being an error in the application. You're increasing the odds of human error that the you know the application might not be processed or processed correctly. And so, the the goal for states should really be to remove as many hurdles as possible in order to uh, give everyone in the United States, regardless of where they live, um, the same chance to have their voice heard. So keep it simple, just mail people their ballots. Um, that's what I would recommend, and that, that would be the most efficient uh, administrative um, procedure and the easiest for voters. Mike, do you have any plans for election night? Um, I'm going to be safely at home, hopefully celebrating with my, my family and uh, with a, a couple of local elected officials, hopefully. That's what Zoom is for. <laughs> right. Indeed. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. This is, um, it's, we've gone from worst case scenario to um, how to save our democracy. I'm feeling, I'm feeling hopeful that, that we will get there, that we'll make the preparations and, you know, it'll be chaotic, but I think, um, I think the will of the people, I think we can do it. I, I have no doubt that, that we can. And, and you're absolutely right. One of the, the silver linings here is that, even though this is an emergency situation and that the pressure is being put on, many of these reforms can help us to permanently open up our political system and make it more voter-friendly and ensure the rights of each and every voter. Great. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for your time. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Mike Latner. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Stay safe, and see you next time.